What is culture? La culture, c'est entre autres les éléments qui se transmettent d'une génération à l'autre et qui façonnent l'identité comme la langue, les récits et les croyances. Welcome back to Notes from the Field. I'm Dr. Sarah Riccardi Swartz. Today, I am interviewing my co-host, Dr. Nathan Madsen, who's currently a visiting scholar at the University of Minnesota Law School and Human Rights Center. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Sarah. So today is um, a sort of a reprisal of what we did uh, with me, which is asking questions. And in this case, you're in the hot seat. And I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about what brought you to anthropology. Well, so, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, I was trained as a lawyer prior to graduate school. So I went actually to the University of Minnesota Law School and studied human rights. And while I was there, and even in undergrad, I, I was very much involved in a lot of human rights work and a lot of human rights advocacy. And I could see, of course, the legal basis for all of these things, right? They human rights came from the law and it came from a legal perspective. But once it left that legal perspective, it operated in very, very different ways, depending on where you were and who you were with. And I really wanted to understand how human rights traveled, what human rights meant to different groups of people, and, and really sort of what the flexibility of human rights were. Because in the law, we don't really often think about law as being flexible. And so I thought, okay, well, if that's what I want to study, that falls under human or that falls under anthropology. So I decided to start looking into different programs with anthropologists of human rights and um, decided that I was going to work with Dr. Sally Mary at NYU. Awesome. And so for, for me, it seems like I'm, you know, I'm not, I didn't go to law school. I'm not a lawyer. It seems like the law is more about um, uh, helping us figure out our organizational structures and keeping us within those boundaries. Whereas um, human rights through an anthropological focus um, is more about the human experience. Is that what I'm picking up? Yeah, in a way. So I, I, I would say that law really, it, even though it sort of goes into everyday life, which is not black and white. It tries to provide some black and white, black and white rules for you. So, you know, oftentimes we get an if A situation, then B. But oftentimes the law as it was written or if it was decided um, by a court, those factual patterns, those situations don't map on into any other branch of life or in any other way perfectly. And so you oftentimes do have to figure out how to use a black and white system in a grayscale way. But anthropology of human rights says there's no need to find a quote unquote right answer, the right form of law, um, and, and just deals or it gets rid of the black and white entirely. And it says, we live in a grayscale world we have these rules that um, that are being applied to a grayscale world, and how are we going to understand them? Right. How how do we make sense of these sort of uh, strict confines within our messy uh, experience of humanity? Right. Exactly. Um, so tell us a little bit about your work. Uh, you not only are an excellent um, 
anthropologist of human rights, but you also uh, work a little bit in linguistic anthropology. Is that right? A little bit, yeah. I, um, you know, I initially studied as a linguistic anthropologist. I, I did jump ship and joined the sociocultural anthropology side <laughs> of things, but linguistic anthropology is still very important to me, and and language itself is very important to the work that I do. So, what I really am looking at is what does human rights mean, and and not just in a very abstract sense, but I work in Hong Kong with LGBT activists, and I'm looking at how they understand human rights, how the people that they're interacting with, whether it's government officials or people on the street, how they understand human rights. And I'm and I'm talking about literally the phrase human rights, because for people on the street in Hong Kong, human rights is is being used in a very particular way. And that what that does is it shuts off using human rights for LGBT issues. Mm. But at the same time, the LGBT activists that I'm working with understand that their fight really truly is a human rights fight, that there is developing and growing consensus around the world that LGBT rights are human rights. And so when they're talking to government officials, when they're talking to the United Nations, when they're talking to international funders, and when they're talking to themselves, they're oftentimes using the language of human rights. But because they're cognizant of the fact that everyday Hong Kongers think about human rights in a very different way, they can't use that language. And they have to reform and recast the work that they're doing into something that is locally recognizable and locally impactful. And how how do local Hong Kongers understand human rights? So, you'll if you were to talk to human uh, or talk to everyday Hong Kongers, you know, in 2017, 2018 when I was doing my field work, they would say which means we have human rights mainland Chinese people don't. Hmm. That was how they understood human rights as a way to differentiate themselves from mainland Chinese people. And, you know, for anybody who is not super familiar with the history of Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong was a British colony up until, um, up until 1997. And, between 1985 and 1987, Britain was negotiating the return of Hong Kong to China. And Hong Kongers felt like they didn't have a voice in the, at the table. And they kind of didn't. And so they've seen since 1997's return as a new form of colonization. And one that was much more fraught than British colonization, because the people who are colonizing them are ethnically the same as them. They speak a language in the same linguistic family as them. Um, Many people in Hong Kong have ties to mainland China because many of them came from mainland China and uh, moved there. And so either they're from mainland China or their parents or their grandparents are. And so this need to differentiate themselves from mainland China became overwhelming. And one of the ways in which they did it was through this discourse of human rights. Things, of course, have changed since um, since 2017, 2018, with the um, 
protests that have existed uh, happened in Hong Kong, the increasing concern by Hong Kongers that they are being um, turned into just another Chinese city. And I use that with quotes around it, just another Chinese city. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is, that's a very real fear of theirs, that they're going to be absorbed and that everything that makes Hong Kong unique, including their love of human rights and including their possession and use of human rights will be taken away from them. So this is such a fascinating um, place to do your field work and such an important political moment um, in the history, I think, of human rights. What do you hope people will take from your scholarship? You know, I think of my work as, as sitting between legal anthropology, anthropology of human rights, and the legal world, legal studies. And you know, despite the fact that legal exists in both of these terminologies, there's not often a lot of crossover. And the legal academy, legal scholarship, oftentimes oftentimes tends to strip out society, strip out culture. And I think for people who work in human rights, that's really difficult because the premise is, is that you have human rights because you're human. So they're universal and they exist for all people. But we know that it's really hard to apply universal standards, universal protections, um, universal ideas to people and expect that every single person, no matter how they were socialized, no matter how they were enculturated, that it's going to mean the exact same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Not even the people who are drafting these, um, these documents necessarily think of these things in the same way but they think yeah i think we should have a human right to be free from torture well what does torture mean so what i'm trying to do and what i'm really trying to push for is to incorporate a more anthropological focus into the study of human rights um you know anthropologists of human rights of course I would hope, would support that. Um, But for legal scholars, I think that that's really difficult. The other really big thing that I want to, um, that I want people to take away is that this is, this is work that affects people beyond just the academy, beyond the university, that when we're talking about human rights, and when we're talking about the really messy interplay between human rights, and cultural groups, or, or just social groups in general, that that has real life impacts and and that my data and my scholarship can be used to, to assist people who are human rights defenders, to people who are working in the government, working in the United Nations, that trying to understand sort of where people's understandings of human rights are coming from will help them to do their work better. So it's really a, a form of a, applied anthropology that you hope people will take from your work. Yeah, yes. I, I mean, I've long been fascinated with applied anthropology and, um, you know... I, Which is I, something, Nate, let, let, Nathan, let's tell our listeners what applied anthropology is because some of them may not know. 
So when we talk about anthropology without that descriptor applied, we're oftentimes talking about university-based anthropology. So we're talking about theory, we're talking about, um, we may be talking about hands-on sorts of things, but it is to sort of produce anthropological knowledge and then to teach anthropology, right? Because that's really what the bread and butter of anthropology has been for a very long time. Um, But things are shifting and we're recognizing that you can use this knowledge and you can apply this knowledge to so many different real world situations or even the skills and training of an anthropologist. I mean, who doesn't want to be a better listener and a better critical thinker in the workplace? Um, So I'm very much interested in in thinking beyond the university. Um, You know, I... I see myself in the future as as really bridging a gap between applied anthropology and and more academic anthropology. Um, but I think that we have to, just for our own sake, as as scholars of people who are working with people, to think about what can the application of this knowledge be. Right, right. We we can't silo our research um, or our ideas within the academy. We have to be able to think more broadly and use our knowledge to um, to reach out to different publics. And that's really what applied anthropology does. Um, exactly. Actively. Okay. So Nathan, tell our listeners what's next, where you're going from here. Well, so I have two articles that will be coming out. Um, I don't know when, but (laughs) in the near future, uh, I have an article coming out in Law and Social Inquiry that will come out first. It's actually available online now. Um, It just hasn't been assigned a print volume and issue number. Um, And then an article in American Anthropologist. And both of these articles deal with the fieldwork that I did in Hong Kong, specifically around the issues of trans rights and looking at the ways in which different LGBT people fought for trans rights. And I I use LGBT consciously because this was a coalition of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Hong Kongers who were all fighting on behalf of transgender rights. And the creative uses that they needed to do to engage with the public to convince people not that issues of um, trans rights are human rights, but that trans people are people and trans people are Hong Kongers at their core. Trans people are Hong Kongers. And so they deserve to be treated just like any other trans, uh, sorry, any other Hong Konger does. And, And that sort of humanity based appeal in quotes um, is really what has been more effective than engaging with the public by saying, listen, transgender Hong Kongers have a right to privacy, a right to bodily integrity, and um, a right to be free from torture. I'm also working on my book manuscript, which I hope to get out to peer review soon, but that's just a more in-depth ethnographic anthropological inquiry into human rights and the work of LGBT activists. What I am particularly interested in that book, and that's something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing fresh right now, is the ways in which an engagement with human rights is become or was racially encoded um, mm. in Hong Kong, that doing human rights work in 
everyday Hong Kong spaces was codification for foreignness, which really we can see, uh, or really we can say is whiteness. Um, Mm. And the ways in which Hong Kongers engaged in human rights work in those spaces would get classified as a banana, yellow on the outside, white on the inside, Mm. or having yellow skin, white heart. Um, And so these kinds of quote unquote betrayals were forms of socialization to push everyday Hong Kongers to use human rights in human rights designated spaces, but not in public spaces. Mm-hmm. Well, I, for one, am very excited to read um, both of your forthcoming articles and your book eventually. Um, I think you're doing amazingly fantastic work and really important work. And so I'm I'm really excited. Um, I wanted to ask you if you have ideas for your next field site. Yeah, so I I've I have a few different ideas. One thing that I've really been interested in doing is working with um, relocating to the United States and working with um, human rights organizations in the United States, particularly those that rely upon pro bono assistance. So pro bono meaning free legal services um, in this case. And the ways in which these human rights organizations who are staffed by human rights professionals with a tremendous amount of work experience and life experience within the human rights field need to retrain oftentimes big law firm lawyers to do human rights work. Because not only is the mentality of what it is you're doing very different than, you know, high profile divorce or uh, corporate mergers and things like that. But the way in which you imagine the law's flexibility, its use, um, the potentialities and the sometimes rigidities of the law as a tool is, I think, going to be really fascinating. And the really big benefit of that that I hope to do is to partner with the human rights organizations that I might find myself working at and to say, listen, I want to write some articles about this. I want to write a book about this, but I also want to put together something that you can use at your organization to help you better understand your pro bono volunteers and how to um, maybe smooth the training process, how to see where issues that you keep coming up with, how you might be able to solve those issues. Um, So I think that it has a really dual benefit purpose. Nathan, thanks for sharing your work with us today. Um, And if anyone wants to know more, we will drop the links um, in our description uh, for both of your forthcoming articles. And it's always a pleasure to hear more about your research. So to our listeners, thanks for joining us today on Notes from the Field. I'm Dr. Sarah Riccardi-Swartz. And I'm Dr. Nathan Madsen. And we'll see you in our next episode. Production support provided by J.D. Swartz, Ran Mo, Anisha Chadha, Shravan Amin, Jerome Yao, Mauro Castro-Martinez, Divyam Singh, and Florence Mohan-Matel.